This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is George Case. And I reached out to him because I saw this book on Amazon. It looked fascinating. It looked like an ideal topic or, or book for my show. Title of that book is Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture, 1966 to 1980. I finished the book this morning. Really fascinating book. Great overview of that really wild era. But George Case has also written other books. He's uh, some of his early titles were Silence Descends, The End of the Information Age, 2000 to 2500, 1997. Also, Jimmy Page, Magus, Musician, Man, 2007. Another is Arcadia Borealis, Childhood and Youth in Northern Ontario, 2008. Out of Our Heads, Rock and Roll Before the Drugs Wore Off, 2010. Led Zeppelin, FAQ, 2011. Also, Dumbing Down Descent, Fads and Fallacies in Political Discourse, 2011. Another fascinating-looking looking book is titled Calling Dr. Strangelove, The Anatomy and Influence of the Kubrick Masterpiece, 2014. And then also this, well, just last year, 2021, he published Taking Care of Business, A History of Working People's Rock and Roll. And he also has a blog or website where he publishes frequently, like once a week, which you can check out. And I'll put that in the show notes. But it's his full name, blog.ca. So it's georgecaseblog.ca. But uh, again, we're going to talk about this book, a fascinating book titled Here's to My Sweet Satan. So George Case, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard of your names or may not have read your books, can you talk about your writing background? You have a long career of writing books. And then what led you to put this book together, Here's to My Sweet Satan? Yeah, I've been writing for probably... uh... 30 going on 40 years now professionally. My first book came out when I was about 30 and now I'm in my 50s. So I've been plugging away at this for a long time. Uh, Like many writers, I do have a day job. So uh, writing is kind of a sideline career for me, but I have managed to have some successes with the books, particularly on my rock and roll books on Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin because there's such a kind of ready-made audience for that already. I've been specializing in nonfiction, although I like to think of myself as sort of social criticism, social history, media theory. So when I've written about pop culture, like rock bands or movies, music, um, what I'm trying to get at is not just a sort of Wikipedia page of something a lot of people already know, but something a little deeper about the the long-term implications, the long-term significance of people like Led Zeppelin or like Stanley Kubrick and Dr. Strangelove, like the rock and roll's intersection with the drug culture 
And in this case, like the occult wave of the 60s and 70s, that's what Here's to My Sweet Satan is about. And the most recent book, which came out last year, as you pointed out, that's about the rock and roll and populism and how that sort of relates to our political trends of the time and what kind of music maybe prompted some of that demographic that's now steering the, our right. political polarization. Yeah, that's supposedly the new wave is populism. So your book is right on time. I hope so. Uh, and it's interesting you mentioned music because that's the first chapter of your book. You talk about Diabolus in Musica. Can you kind of talk about some of those prominent occult-related or cult-influenced bands of that era? The big thing I wanted to start my book off with, because I was focused on the 1960s and 70s, now by today we're all kind of pretty familiar with occult imagery and occult iconography. It's everywhere. It's it's something a lot of people know about. But back in the 1960s, a lot of that stuff was still pretty fringy. And to me, one of the biggest breakthroughs, which I cite in the book, was came in 1967 with the release of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. Now, everyone knows that album is a big psychedelic hit. And of course, it was the Beatles. They were the biggest band ever. But on the cover of that album, which has the gallery of famous faces of all their people they like and people who influence them, up in the corner you can see uh, the face of Aleister Crowley, who at the time was, and now I think a lot of people, and certainly people who are interested in the occult or the paranormal probably know about Aleister Crowley. But at the time he was kind of a semi-forgotten figure. And here he was on one of the biggest selling albums of all time by the biggest group of all time. And so a lot of people of the 10, 15, 20 million people who bought the record, a lot of them were gonna check out who is this guy on the corner and what was he about? What was his history? Now the Beatles themselves were not particularly into the occult or into Crowley, but just the fact that there he was giving a little advertisement on the cover of the album was pretty significant. And from then on, from that period, from 1967 and throughout the next 10, 15 years or more, you would start to see a lot of uh, occult tropes being utilized by all kinds of successful rock groups. Now, a lot of it, and I make this quite clear in the book, a lot of it was just a gimmick. A lot of it was not very serious or very deep. But when you consider the popularity of rock and roll in this time and the size of the audience, particularly of the baby boom generation, that's a lot of people who are checking out some or another form of occult ideas, whether it's Crowley on the cover of Sgt. Pepper or uh, Rolling Stones calling their album their Satanic Majesty's Request or singing Sympathy for the Devil. And of course, the title of my book, Here's to My Sweet Satan, I think a lot of people would recognize. Now, that is one of those urban legends. But supposedly, when you play Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven backwards, you'll hear that, that phrase, Here's to My Sweet Satan. And a lot of people took that very seriously back at the time. They, put their records on the turntable, spun them the wrong way. And if you were prepared to hear that intonation, you would hear it when you played Stairway to Heaven. And so a lot of people thought that bands that big were sending off secret messages in praise of Satan or the occult or some kind of mysterious idea that they were trying to put forward to their fans. It got as far as uh, people saying that the band Kiss K-I-S-S stood for Knights in Satan's Service. They thought ACDC stood for Antichrist, Down with Christ. And they had nothing to do with the intentions of the bands. These people were just rock and rollers trying to make a success in a, in a competitive industry. 
but it, it says something about the, the nature of the fandom, the audience, how prepared they were or we were at the time to read all these hidden messages into the music. And that's kind of a theme throughout the book of how much we and the public were taking farther than what the, the artists, the originators, whether it was musicians like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones or authors, filmmakers, there was a huge and very receptive audience for all these ideas. Now the musical chapter, it does conclude with uh, the influence of the band Black Sabbath, which are you know, pretty overtly playing to the occult imagery. That was the title of the band. That was the title of their songs. They did put devils and, and witches on the cover of their album. So they were kind of laying it on pretty thick for the time. But again, you can see how popular these this music became what a fandom developed and how many of the fans would sort of take the ideas they got from the records and then expand on them or elaborate on them themselves. So it became, it was so popular that it, it inevitably influenced really several generations of listeners into pursuing these interests themselves far beyond what the musicians themselves, I think, wanted to, wanted to say. And that's kind of the fascinating thing for me is the trade-off between what the industry or what the artists were doing, trying to, trying to stay ahead, trying to jump on a bandwagon, maybe just trying to get away with a gimmick versus how the public were receiving it and taking things a lot farther and coming up with all kinds of urban legends or rumors and getting interested in a much deeper way. But it says something a lot about the kind of culture we were living in at the time. I think it really does. And that's the theme of your book. It's not just the music, but also the movies. And you see those artists taking on these forms that are publicly sellable, but the artists themselves may not be as believers. Maybe you could take Jimmy Page out of that, but some <laughs> of them don't seem to be as, uh, you know, I, I think it was some of the uh, cult themed movies. Like the guys just saw an opportunity after the exorcist, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was a bandwagon. And as I write in the book, nothing succeeds like success. And for a few years, nothing succeeded like satanic success. Now, some of that was pure opportunism, but on the other hand, as you say, when you talk about someone like Jimmy Page, well, some of these people really were curious about the occult. Jimmy Page was interested in reading Aleister Crowley. He was pursuing some of that knowledge. He was um, hanging out with Kenneth Anger, the occult filmmaker. So there was a lot of links that some were, some were coincidental, some were peripheral, but I think a lot of people at the time, not just the artists, but also the audience, but some combination of the two, were actually quite curious about the ideas espoused by Aleister Crowley and other people from that era. So the message was getting spread. Now, maybe today it does look kind of frivolous. It looks commercial. It looks like a big gimmick. But at the time, I think, and for me as a kid, when I was growing up in this era, it was hard not to be exposed to all of it, whether it was Led Zeppelin or Kiss or Alice Cooper, and then you couldn't escape something as big as The Exorcist, huge, it was a blockbuster movie, that was a best-selling book, The Omen, uh, Rosemary's Baby, all these things were kind of inescapable. Even I have a chapter on um, kids' products, which included Count Chocula, Frankenberry. Now, it seems harmless, it seems silly, but when you combine all that together for a single generation, for a single culture, getting these messages from so many sources, I think it, it does show something about how we were thinking and, and how, how belief was changing at the time. And I think it still resonates today. I think a lot of that 
the repercussions from what happened in the 60s and 70s about how we started changing our thoughts about what is real, what it's, what's plausible, what, what we want to believe. I think that still is, is in the culture right now. I totally agree with you. And it's still reverberating to this day. People are still listening to those musicians, referencing those incredible films. Uh, so it's such an important, and you can see the 50s, the change from the 50s to the late 60s is really remarkable. But can you talk kind of maybe about some of that kind of sin cinema that you talk about, like how Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and The Omen were such important kind of uh, things within that cult influence culture at the time? Right. Um, to me, what I thought was the breakthrough of the movies of that era. Now, there have always been horror movies. We know Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and the Mummy. There's always been ghost stories. That wasn't new. I think what was new through the hit and the success of movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and The Omen was that rather than being set in Transylvania or some far off place, some Gothic background, these were being placed right in the here and now among ordinary people in the contemporary world. Um, they didn't start off credulous. The idea, the recurring theme in so many of these movies is the ordinary person like Rosemary or Reagan's mom in The Exorcist or uh, Ambassador Thorne in The Omen. Like they were just normal, rational people who were suddenly confronted with something occult, something satanic, something paranormal. Um, so that made it a lot more plausible, I think, to the audience. When you watch Dracula or when you watch Frankenstein, you can kind of, you're watching it at a remove because you can't identify with those settings. It looks old medieval, set in Europe, seems like it's in another time. But when you're watching The Exorcist, I think what was so effective about that, and one reason it became such a hit and so influential to this day, is because they're sort of acknowledging that, yes, this does seem, the idea of demonic possession does seem implausible and we're supposed to have moved beyond it. But here it is, at least in the movie, you're able to suspend your disbelief because they made it seem so realistic and they sort of dispensed with all those quote unquote rational explanations until you're finally confronted with, yes, here's a, a child possessed by a demon. So whether or not the ideas themselves in the cold light of day are, are plausible or fact-based, at least for the two hours that you're watching those movies, you do get pretty caught up in the storyline and you do feel like you can identify with the characters and identify with the situations because they're set in the present day. And that was one reason they had such an impact at the time and, and spread out among so many people be was because they seemed like, almost like documentaries, they seemed like something that could be really happening. Right, it's really remarkable. Really a change in those kind of horror films. And also you mentioned Stephen King too, because it seems like he adapted that same approach to his horror films was ordinary people in Maine or whatever, and then became the greatest, I mean, the most published writer possibly of our I think era. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, King was sort of a similar breakthrough in that way, because rather than writing about, again, far off people or a fantasy world, he was writing about ordinary Americans, just regular working stiffs, you know, writers, people living in small town Maine, a uh, high school student like Carrie, frustrated writer like Jack Torrance, um, all these characters that we could really identify with, ordinary middle Americans like the people in the stand. But suddenly they were sort of plunged into these classic horror 
scenarios of ghosts or vampires or telekinesis or an apocalyptic plague. Uh, and they seemed, I think the audience at the time was ready for that. They'd had enough of those sort of old fashioned ghost stories where everything was spooky and gothic and, and, and removed from, and maybe kind of too refined. Here was somebody writing about real ordinary people who drank beer, who watched TV, who drove trucks, who listened to pop music, who were as immersed in modern American, modern world society as anyone, but yet here they were coming up against something supernatural. And I think, again, that, that combination of the paranormal with the plausible made him so effective, as well as just simply writing a lot of books and becoming kind of a brand name himself. But as with The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, Stephen King is a great entertainer. And the fact that he was writing about these recurring themes of the occult and the supernatural kind of changed, it kind of brought the supernatural to the middle of the road. It didn't, he didn't do it the other way around. He didn't bring the middle of the road to the supernatural. Now the middle of the road is the occult. There's so right. many books and so many films, so much entertainment now that is based on vampires or ghosts or something, something irrational, but it's now part of our culture. Look at The Walking Dead. Look at Harry Potter. They're all set in a world of magic and- Twilight, the Twilight, Twilight. series. Sure. I mean, and all that sort of stemmed from this big boom that happened in the 60s and 70s and has never really died away. It's just become everywhere nowadays. Right, it's just grown. It really is incredible. It's a huge culture shift. I think your book really encapsulates all of that change that happened at that time. And I mean, you there, and it wasn't just with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Kind of, there was the occult, but there was also kind of alternate ideas. You talk about Bigfoot <laughs> and other kind of astrological things. Can you talk about other contexts that could be interpreted as occult that happened during that era? Right. Well, that, during the same period when all these books and movies and music were coming out, there was a whole kind of sidebar or a subcategory of interest in stuff that was a, at the time not purported to be fiction, but it was considered to be real. And that would include things like investigation into Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Mothman, um, Chariots of the Gods. That was a huge best-selling book in the 1970s. Um, the Amityville Horror, it was you know, pre presented as nonfiction. Sybil, presented as nonfiction. The Bermuda Triangle, that was something a lot of people were seriously interested in and you know, afraid to fly their ship, their planes or their boats in that area. And it was all presented as you know, semi-factual, plausible. So that was sort of the early wave of, again, it's something we see all the time now is that Kind of speculative nonfiction, where people are taking a small amount of influence of, of fact or data and maybe extrapolating it into something really quite wild. But again, at the time, the public was quite prepared to start considering all that stuff. And that includes things like astrology, 
or the idea of uh, psychokinesis, uh, parapsychology, even the idea of talking to plants. Um, you may remember the, the alleged psychic Yuri Geller, who could go on TV shows and allegedly bend spoons with his mind. And all that stuff was something that people were really quite receptive to. <laughs> Thanks, Sheehan. Yeah, because it was so uh, it was so pervasive. You would see yeah. these people all the time. There were documentaries. Uri Geller was on the Tonight Show. Like they were very familiar figures, and the ideas behind them—the idea that maybe there's a Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest, maybe there's a Loch Ness monster. Uh, maybe there's a Mothman in, around Pennsylvania. Cryptozoology, right? Cryptozoology was a really big thing. Um, and it hasn't quite gone away, but it it seemed pretty convincing. And the fact that it wasn't about Satan or devils or anything, to me, it still seems kind of occult-related. They still seem to be part of the same big trend in, in culture, whereby people were sort of putting aside the previous decades worth of scientific rationalism and order. When you think about what was happening in the 60s and 70s, a lot of basic principles of, of society were coming under question. The, the importance of the church, of the, the being able to trust your government. So, there were so many scandals. The, the conflict between the generations during the 60s anti-war protests, civil rights protests. There was a lot that was coming into question. And among those things was basically religion, as well as even science and ultimately even rationalism, where people were starting to speculate on, well, what, what more is there besides putting a man on the moon and a world of plastic and TV? There's got to be something deeper, something some mystery that's still out there in the universe. So just when we seem to be solving all the problems and all that got us was, you know, a, a cold war and, and a threat of nuclear annihilation or whatever. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah. there was a kind of hunger for all this other knowledge, other ways of knowing or thinking that was beyond just the scientific rationalism that had got us this far. So there's almost a rejection of, there was a lot of things being rejected at the time by so many people for different political or social reasons but i think the occult was just another form of rejection where people were starting to ask questions maybe not you know the best questions maybe maybe the answers were already there but they were at least starting to question what was the meaning of what was rationalism what was what was true what was what is knowable and the pursuit of things like the bermuda triangle and the ancient astronauts theory of uh, chariots of the gods all that was part of it because it is unknown, it is mysterious, and maybe that it can all be debunked. But at the time, it did attract a pretty big audience of people who were willing to, to at least consider it. Right, huge though. I mean, you were telling some of the numbers of those books. People don't know today that the Bermuda Triangle seems to have fallen out of favor in society, in like alternate culture. But you said there were 7 million copies of a book sold back then. Like, that's just an enormous amount of money. And there's a lot of those big sellers. Sybil, you said, sold a ton of money. Sure. So yeah. And remember, this is all, culture changes, yeah. yeah, this is pre-internet as well, too. So people weren't logging on to just, you know, grab anything they could. This was when there was just, you know, a few TV networks, some big publishers, and books. You could find books in your local... Uh, doctor's office or drugstore, like it was a much more 
print-based culture, but the fact that these books, like a book on the Bermuda Triangle or the Amityville Horror or Chariots of the Gods or How to Talk to Your Plants or astrology books, the fact that these things were kind of everywhere, they've now migrated since to the internet. Maybe you can find all the same stuff online. But at the time, the fact that they were so pervasive, you could find them just in your local drugstore. Here was a book on the Bermuda Triangle. Here was another one on the Sasquatch. It was all very front and center for any, even people who weren't really interested in it uh, or didn't, you know, didn't want to have an opinion on it. You, you still couldn't get away from it because uh, they were so visible at the time. They were making documentaries about it. They were making TV shows. So it was pretty much inescapable. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I think Sheila says that stuff in the 70s. Like, I remember growing up on Insert, In Search Of. Yeah. And was that the Leonard Nimoy one? That was Leonard Nimoy. And there was that some was other Leonard one. Nimoy, yeah. Yeah. So those so were they, great. Like, I love watching that. And you mentioned one of my other favorite shows when I was a kid, which is Kolchak or Court. Oh, yeah, The Night Stalker. Night yeah, there Stalker. again. Yeah. Every week, Stalker. there he was. And there he was just a regular detective in the modern world, you know, living in a contemporary urban environment but he was facing off against vampires and ghosts and monsters and stuff so it's that constant integration of the supernatural with the ordinary that made it seem so plausible we could all kind of suspend our disbelief at the time so it wasn't being placed in transylvania or in far off someplace that no one was ever going to get to i think people could really identify with these ideas and these situations and yeah, Bigfoot and Bermuda Triangle books were like, there was a whole, a lot of them were quick. It's an a lot industry. Were, it was an industry. I absolutely. Think, I think yeah. Industry. yeah. Anyway, Kolchak was really fun. Like I remember, it's very nostalgic reading your book as somebody who's, I mean, I'm 53. So it's like, those are the, and you had to wait for the time for it to come on. So Kolchak, right. sometimes in my town, it was uh, Mon Monster Mash was late at night and they would reshow it late at night. So you had to sure, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were all growing up. I, and for me, one sub-theme of the book is a little bit of nostalgia. Like, whether or not you take it seriously, whether or not you were really interested in all that stuff, I think when you're reading through it, you'll sort of see a lot of names and titles that you remember and think, oh, yeah, that was big. Oh, right, that was a big thing. A lot of them have since faded away, and maybe they're not, they don't have the, the impact today that you think they did but when you see the names and the titles and recognize a lot of material that was out there you'll realize oh yes that's still kind of lingering on because it was so so familiar at the time we would have been surrounded by all that stuff on tv at the movies the bookstore everywhere yeah i mean it really something else but this kind of book encapsulates the antecedents of kind of internet conspiracy culture so you can kind of see that same kind of searching not really looking for traditional explanations, but alter and, and kind of you know, occultism kind of goes in waves. So I kind of see like this book as an important uh, encapsulation of that time where the occult was coming back. Like you know, that era really was kind of a very, had that strong current of occultism in it. Yeah, and that's, that is something I mentioned in the chapter on um, Stranger Than Science on this Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle is that it did seem to be almost anticipate some of the the conspiracy culture that 
now we we have a lot of today but even at the time there was starting to be speculation about the murder of jfk um you know who did this or who did that but the fact that maybe these things like the sasquatch or the bermuda triangle were real but maybe they were being hidden from us maybe government or authority knew about the ancient astronauts but hadn't been telling us the story so there was that subtext in a lot of these this material about about not being able to trust authority or looking behind the veil of hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Of rationalism and officialdom to find some real truth. And I think um, I know that one later influence of the Night Stalker, the Kolchak series, uh, turned into the X-Files, which is sort of almost like a, a later version of the same idea, whereby all these hidden or mysterious or occult things were out there. The truth is out there was the subtext of the of the series, but it was being somehow withheld by the government. So that sort of paved the way for a lot of the suspicion or the mistrust that you see everywhere today. A lot of it got started, I think, during the occult wave when so much was put under question and where it's, so many people were willing to distrust the official version of so many things that if they were made to seem plausible, believable through all these books and movies, then, well, maybe there was something to it. So I think a lot of people started to become suspicious of the official version of many things during this occult wave. No, you're right. I think you're really right. And still to this day, I could you could put flat earthers kind of as a new iteration of that era where they're questioning everything and mm -hmm. interesting conclusions, but they're still questioning a lot. Uh, you, I mean, there were so many like a cult after uh, Omen and after Exorcist and after Rosemary's Baby, there was a lot of pulp kind of Satanism cult movies that came out that nobody really knows about, right? I right. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of junk, for sure. Um, I was thinking of things like "It's Alive" and "Race with the Devil," and there's all kinds of strange titles I was digging up through the book, like "Satan's School for Girls" or, you know, "To the Devil a Daughter," uh, the reincarnation of 
Peter Proud. There's a lot of stuff that maybe has been forgotten. The Devil's Reign was another one. Things that, but they all incorporated some element of Satanism or witchcraft or, or the supernatural in them. And of course, there are many sequels to The Omen and to The Exorcist. Even The Exorcist is basically a franchise now. So the fact that these things were popular and they did produce a lot of spin-offs. certainly in the books and the TV movies at the time, I was thinking of uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. They made a movie of Salem, a TV movie of Salem's Lot. They made a TV movie of uh, Harvest Home. All these things were just being churned out as an industry. And maybe it was kind of cynical, maybe it was just opportunistic, but we were getting that message constantly, day after day, night after night about these the plausibility of something supernatural whether it was witchcraft or fertility rights or uh, cryptozoology it was all becoming there was a whole there's probably a good dozen or more movies based on bigfoot there were movies about the devil's triangle the satan's triangle they were all trying to tie it into one big one big occult themed product and it, but again it it must have worked because that's where Hollywood and Madison Avenue went with it. They must have seen dollar signs and obviously it paid off for them. Right. And the exorcist made an inordinate amount of money. I think you said it was like 200 million on a $3 million budget or something like that. Like that is, that starts. So the Omen, we're on Omen five or something like that. But you yeah. also mentioned in your book that there's kind of real kind of occult elements, Manson, Berkowitz, so they're really kind of in that era, there were real things that may have influenced the larger culture. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, as the book goes through chapter by chapter, um, I started going through like a lot of the entertainment, the, the fun stuff, the stuff that we could sort of pick up and put down after. But there were some real legitimate news stories at the time during the 60s and 70s about either occult crimes or just investigation into the ideas of the occult that were were not entertainment they were serious um charles manson was certainly one of them now he, whether or not he was a student of the occult i think that's pretty questionable but the fact that he was considered to be a cultist or that he was acting on some impulse besides what you know we usually associate with serial killers and that would include people like David Berkowitz, too, who was also claimed to be the son of Sam and was communicating with demons. And then uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, during the uh, 80s, he was inscribing pentagrams on his hand and he was asking his victims to plead for mercy from Satan. Like these people were really acting out of some serious, serious occult influences in, on themselves. Now, maybe they were going to be murderers anyway, but the occult had become a vehicle for them to act out these kind of, this kind of outrage, this kind of violence. So by the time that you get into Manson or even things like the Church of Satan uh, in San Francisco or the popularity of the Wicca movement, witchcraft, or even things like Ouija boards, um, astrology tarot cards that's that's stuff that could be used and and experienced by a lot of ordinary people it wasn't just a a movie that you would watch for two hours and forget about it was something that was becoming a way of people of life for people uh even i think it was in 1972 the pope at the time made a speech about confronting the devil's power like there was the head of the catholic church 
acknowledging that Satan was real. So it was reaching a lot of people and it wasn't just something that you could compartmentalize into Hollywood or Madison Avenue. It was something that a lot of people were starting to take seriously and have an influence on their own life. When you think of um, the Jonestown massacre in Guyana, 1978, I think. Now, again, it's not a satanic cult, but it's definitely a kind of fringe religion that turned very violent and had a disastrous outcome for the people who are participating in it. So there again, for the average member of the public, you're going to be exposed to all this, not just on as entertainment, but also as news. This was becoming real headline events at the time. So people, whatever your feelings about the occult were at the time, you, you couldn't escape from it because it was all, it was, it was in the news as it's well the as news. the movie theaters. Right. And it's kind of interesting because LaVey himself kind of uh, associated with people in movies and culture too, right? So right. he was hanging out with uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Jane Mansfield. He was on The Tonight Show in 1967, hard to believe. But there he was preaching the Church of Satan. And he so he got a lot of publicity this way. And he was on magazine covers and doing interviews. He claimed a lot of things that turned out to be not true. He got a lot of attention for himself that was based on him stretching the truth quite a bit. But certainly a lot of people knew about the Church of Satan. He wrote a few books, The Satanic Bible. That was a popular book at the time. It's uh, still the number one selling book in the occult genre and Amazon. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, people are still interested in all kinds of various branches of Satanism. Now, a lot of people ended up breaking away from his Church of Satan because they could kind of see he was a bit of a huckster and he was doing it for the publicity and bringing in money for himself. But there still are quite a few, quite a significant subculture of serious practicing Satanists who at least are espousing the basically some progressive secular causes, but also the idea of freedom of religion. So you should be able to worship whatever kind of God you want. But again, in 1966 and 1967, when LeVay was coming out with this and sort of updating that Aleister Crowley view of do what thou wilt and live your life free of guilt, well, that was pretty provocative in 1967 when so much else was already changing, when you had the hippie movement and the sexual revolution, the civil rights revolution. Here was someone actually preaching about, you know, shrug off the conventional judeo-christian morality and live for yourself and do whatever you want now that obviously had a really receptive audience at the time because a lot of people were pursuing that anyway and so when you make satan the head of that i think that was going to have an enormous impact on how people how people reacted to what was already out there they all sort of combined and reinforced each other right right that makes sense george we're at about 35 minutes do you mind taking a few questions sure Okay, I got one from Gameplay. He asks, what occult themes in media back then have survived and are in occult media today? I well, I think, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of the common one is the suspicion that particular entertainers are, or even public figures, never mind just entertainers, are secretly practicing some sort of Satanism or witchcraft. Um, you hear that about people like Taylor Swift or Beyonce, that they've somehow made satanic hand gestures in their videos. These kind of rumors get started a lot, um, just in the same way they used to be said about Jimmy Page or Ozzy Osbourne or Alice Cooper. 
now virtually every public figure or entertainer will have some sort of satanic attribution placed on them from some corner. Maybe not everyone believes it, but if you go deep enough, you'll you'll find someone making the accusation. Even with um, when you think about the some of the QAnon theories about Pizzagate, somehow they always turn out that these powerful people are sacrificing children and having satanic orgies. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Secretly. So there's always that. It's not just that they're particularly corrupt or particularly untrustworthy, but there's always some involvement of Satan in these serious charges. So, again, whether or not you believe them, whether you think they're just conspiracy theories to be dismissed, the fact that people still are suspicious of what they see as satanic or occult beliefs, practices being carried on by well-known figures, I think that has certainly carried on from the occult era. Um, it happens because now it happens online, it tends to happen a lot faster and the rumors go flying a lot quicker and a lot farther. But it's the same idea that behind the facade of what so-and-so appears to be in their public or official face, behind that they're really doing something very nefarious or, or evil. That seems to be lingering on well into the present. And that I think originated a lot back in the 60s and 70s. Wow, yeah. And where's the uh, where's the best? Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap it up, George? Well, um, I hope uh, people will appreciate the book. Now, what I always tell people that when they're reading it, it's not it's not an attempt to prove or disprove anything in the occult. Um, I think you can come to it with your, an open mind and appreciate this, the entertainment, even some of the nostalgia of the stories that I've I've dug up and remembering a lot of the titles and the names that I've, I've mentioned in the book. But I did want to add a sort of sideline of here's the true story or here's the a deeper background of, uh, of what was going on. A lot of stuff that we believed or heard about at the time over the years has been another side to that has come out. So I wanted to incorporate that into some of these stories. For example, whether it was The Exorcist or The Amityville Horror or Anton LaVey or Black Sabbath. I just wanted to give a little more background to how these people were perceived during the time and what we've learned about it since. Ouija boards, of course, they was, those were a huge phenomenon. I think we've all tried our hand at the Ouija board. And of course, those turned up in things like uh, The Exorcist. They were very popular. And supposedly, uh, Alice Cooper, the rock star, got his name from a Ouija board session. So that's another thing I try to suggest in the book is how much all these elements were kind of reinforcing each other. You saw it in a rock band. You saw the same thing in a kid's comic book. Then you saw the same thing in a popular novel. Then that turned into a hit movie. So you couldn't get away from it. Gotcha. And the best place to get the book is through Amazon or is there another place where people can get 
Coffee Definitely uh, Amazon. I know it's carried at uh, Barnes and Noble if they're still around, but Amazon is uh, my biggest platform where they're all, all my titles have been available. Gotcha. And then you also, if people want to reach out to you, they can do it through your WordPress or your blog, which is georgecaseblog.ca, right? Correct. Yeah. I can be contacted there. I get quite a few questions from different readers asking about whatever the latest thing I've written, but also about some of my older books too. Great. So people can reach out to you. Through excellent discussion. Really appreciate your time. Fascinating book. Loved reading it. Really I learned a lot. Some stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that Ira Levin had written about Crowley in the original Rosemary's Baby. So that's something I have to look into. And, and also LeVay was rumored to be involved in that. That's in one that of those movie. rumors. But, yeah. you know, looking at the facts, he wasn't. But it was a great story at the time. <laughs> Yeah, so he would be the one, kind of like Crowley, who would like uh, use that for self-promotion, right? But Absolutely. Uh, anyway, George Case is the name of the author, title of the book. Here's to My Sweet Satan, How the Occult Haunted Music, Movies, and Pop Culture, 1966 to 1980. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, good to talk to you. Thank All you. Right, All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.